Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Our speaker this evening received his Ph.D. in philosophy from the Catholic University of America in 1997. Dr. John Cudaback writes and lectures on various topics, including virtue, culture, natural law, contemplation, and friendship. His book, True Friendship, When Virtue Becomes Happiness, was republished in 2010. He is a third-order lay Dominican and currently teaches at the philosophy department of Christendom College, which is where I met him. He's an avid gardener and hunter, and he lives with his wife and six children in the Shenandoah Valley. Uh, Dr. Cudaback has come to the Institute numerous times. Most recently, he was our professor for our first-ever Sophia Symposium. He, how many Sophia Symposium people are here tonight? Whoa, so you know the drill. They, they spent almost three months uh, doing an introduction to philosophy, so I'm sure we'll be continuing that this evening. And Father Joseph and Father Charles, who normally are here, uh, were delayed at a wake this evening, so I am going to ask Dr. Cudaback to go ahead and come up, and if you all will please stand for the opening prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. We'll replace ourselves in your presence. We raise our voices to you in gratitude for your many blessings, especially for the new life that you offer us and that we celebrate particularly in this Easter season. Please bless our reflections this evening. Open our minds and hearts to all that you would have us learn. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Our Lady Seat of Wisdom, St. Thomas Aquinas, our guardian angels. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay. Well, it's a great pleasure to be with you. Thank you very much for coming out this evening, and uh, many of you I've, I've been with before, and this is always a great delight. The, the topic for uh, these next four weeks, uh, we will take a break within those four weeks, namely the seven, six days in between the days that we're here together. In other words, you don't have to stay for the whole four weeks. <clears throat> but you do have to come back all four times within those four weeks, just to be absolutely clear. Otherwise, what you get this evening will be absolutely worthless. <laughs> just kidding. Um, however, um, just so you know how I am thinking about it, um, I've, I've designed a, it to be like a mini-course. Um, four, four presentations here where the idea is to, to give you an introduction to reading this, one of the greatest works ever written. So I'd like to give you just a quick overview of what I see doing over the course of the four lectures, and more specifically what I see doing this evening. We'll talk more about the structure of the Summa. You can learn a lot about the Summa by looking at the structure of it. There are three main parts to it. So the way I've just, I'm not going to tell you about them yet, but the way I've decided to divide it up is tonight is the general introduction fundamentally to 
the author, St. Thomas Aquinas. We are going to be trying to understand who he is, where he came from, what made him tick. And then the other three evenings that we have, I'm going to devote each of those evenings to one of the main three parts. Right? So next week will be the first part, the third week will be the second part, and our fourth week will be the third part of the Summa. And more specifically then, what I'm going to do is choose two or three what are called articles, and we'll talk more about that. I'm going to, I'm going to assume nothing. If you have a little bit of experience already, great. But the Summa is divided up in a very specific way, coming down to fundamentally being in what are called articles. Articles are very short. So I'm going to choose two or three articles that I'm going to ask you, if you can, to read before coming for the second lecture and the third lecture and the fourth lecture. If you don't read them, that's okay. Um, we'll still, I'll, I'll, I'll make a presentation on it. But I thought that those of you who can would appreciate having that opportunity to be seeing it happen and be exposed to just a couple of choice ones. So why don't I go ahead right now, lest I get so excited about this and forget later, tell you right now what the assignment is for next week. Now you're thinking, well, I haven't decided whether I'm coming back next week yet. <laughs> well, okay, fine. I'm still going to invite you to write this down. It doesn't commit you to actually reading them. And so first of all, if every now and then I break out into saying a phrase in Latin, I, I, I apologize. I'll, I'll try to always come back and, and, and say it in English. But um, I was about to say this is from the prima pars. Well, fortunately, that's not too hard to translate. The, in the first part, um, I don't have anything to write on. That's OK. Um, the way the notation that's used for the Summa is you divide the parts according to Roman numerals. So when you see a Roman numeral one, that means first part, or sometimes you say that in Latin, the prima pars. So if you were to look this up, I if you don't have a copy of the Summa, you can go to newadvent.org. There's a couple other places too, but newadvent.org, you can immediately go with the top tab right at the top that has Summa. And you can go in there, and it will say first part. And then the parts are divided into questions. The questions are then divided into articles. All right, that's one of the most complicated things. So we've got three main parts. Each of the parts has a number of questions. Each of the questions is divided into articles. So your assignment for next time is these are both articles that are in the prima parts, the first part. The first is question 12, article 1. And you will be able to find it. Question 12, Article 1. I'm going to tell you right now the title so that you'll be able to be sure that you got to the right one. And it is, Can Any Created Intellect See the Essence of God? Is the title of that article. And, and you'll find it's very short. Very, very short. Very, but rather dense. The other one that I'm going to invite you to read for next time is Question 91, Article 3. Question 91, Article 3, and that is entitled, Whether the Body of Man Was Given an Apt Disposition. So I'll, I'll just tell you now why I have chosen those two. The prima pars is fundamentally about God, and then creation, especially the angels and man. So I've chosen one article there that's a classic one about God and our ability to know him. And then this other article is a really neat article that is about the human body 
and whether the way that it is designed, literally the anatomy, does it, as it were, fit with human nature according to the divine plan, and it's a really neat article. So those two, I'll, if you can read before next time, great. And then we'll be able to look at that. But again, if you can't, if you're able to print it out, um, that'd be great too. All right. That said, we're going to back up. And for those of you who just came in, again, the, the focus this week is who is St. Thomas Aquinas? Then we're going to look at the historical context after a few things about him and his vocation. Then we're going to go to the historical context because really it would be extremely difficult to understand the Summa without our doing that. But what I want to begin with is to whet your appetite by looking at a few quotations about St. Thomas on the handout. St. Thomas Aquinas, ladies and gentlemen, has an extremely unique position among thinkers in the history of the church. The way that he has been referred to by pontiff after pontiff after pontiff is absolutely unique. And I want to give you some sense here. This is, this is just, this is an argument, as it were, from authority. This is just to point out, this is why you might be especially interested to try to be able to appreciate this great work, the Summa of Theology, written by St. Thomas Aquinas, because it is his main work. And here I want you to get some sense of how recommended this particular man is. So let's just peek at this together. Pope Leo XIII, 19th century. Among the scholastic doctors, the chief and master of all towers Thomas Aquinas who, as Cajetan observes, because, quote, this is a fabulous point, he most venerated the ancient doctors of the church, because he most venerated the ancient doctors of the church, in a certain way, seems to have inherited the intellect of them all. St. Thomas Aquinas was a master of reading all the fathers of the church. So many say, if you want to know the minds of the fathers of the church... A great way to do that is to read the man who best understood all of them and brings them together. I go on quoting Leo XIII. The doctrines of those illustrious men, like the scattered members of a body, Thomas collected together and cemented, distributed in wonderful order, and so increased with important additions that he has rightly esteemed the special bulwark and glory of the Catholic faith. With his spirit at once humble and swift, his memory ready and tenacious, his life spotless throughout, a lover of truth for its own sake, richly endowed with human and divine science. Like the sun, he heated the world with the ardor of his virtues and filled it with the splendor of his teaching. Another quick quotation from Leo Thirteenth. I forgot to put on here. It was, it's the name. The name of the encyclical is Eterni Patris, which is, in English is on the restoration of Christian philosophy. Moreover, the angelic doctor, that is his nickname, used by the pontiffs here, the angelic doctor pushed his philosophical conclusions into the reasons and principles of the things which are most comprehensive and contain in their bosom, so to say, the seeds of almost infinite truths to be unfolded in good time by later masters and with a goodly yield. Let carefully selected teachers endeavor to implant the doctrine of Thomas Aquinas in the minds of the students and set forth clearly his solidity and excellence over others. 
It's interesting, ladies and gentlemen, you will see again and again the authority in the church making a point of, of directing us in our studies. If we are interested in studying the Catholic faith, there is an extremely strong tradition of put St. Thomas Aquinas first, put him first among thinkers. Obviously, this is not putting him above Scripture, but among the thinkers that expound our faith, put him first among the teachers. I go on to Pope uh, Innocent VI. His teaching above that of others, the canons alone accepted, enjoys such an elegance of phraseology, a method of statement, a truth of proposition, that those who hold to it are never found swerving from the path of truth, and who, he who dare assail it will always be suspected of error. It's a, just a very strong statement. Blessed Pope Pius IX, here you're going to see particularly how he uses authority to say in Catholic schools and Catholic seminaries, this is what our course of studies is going to be. Let everyone hold inviolable the prescription of the Code of Ken Law, he quotes, that teachers, now this would be the old code, but the teachers shall treat the studies of philosophy and theology and train students therein according to the method, doctrine, and principles of the angelic doctor and religiously adhere thereto. And all should obey this regulation in such a manner that they can truly call St. Thomas their teacher. Finally, I'd like to fast forward up to now St. John Paul II. Some have perhaps suggested that the, the great emphasis of St. Thomas Aquinas has, has not been as strong in recent years. I direct your attention to Pope John Paul II's great encyclical Fides et Ratio, Faith and Reason. He refers back to the encyclical quoted at the top of our page. More than a century later, many of the insights of Leo XIII's encyclical letter have lost none of their interest from either a practical or pedagogical point of view, most particularly his insistence upon the incomparable value of the philosophy of St. Thomas Aquinas, a renewed insistence upon the thought of the angelic doctor seems to Pope Leo XIII the best way to recover the practice of a philosophy consonant with the demands of the faith. Just when St. Thomas, Thomas distinguishes perfectly between faith and reason, the Pope writes, he's quoting Leo, he unites them in bonds of mutual friendship, conceding to each its specific rights and to each its specific dignity. And then finally, I want to quote you further from St. John Paul II. If it has been necessary from time to time to intervene on this question, to reiterate the value of the angelic doctor's insights, and insist on the study of his thought, this has been because the magisterium's directives have not always been followed with the readiness one would wish. So, I hope that that whets your appetite for studying St. Thomas trying to enter into there's something perennial there's something for all ages it is true that his he wrote 800 years ago his writing it can at times be a little bit remote it is a different style it's going to take a little bit of an effort but at the same time the truths the method are unchanging and will pay off if we're willing to make a little effort. So, what I want to do is give you a little bit of background, first of all, biographical data, and then I need to tell you about him as a Dominican, because key to understanding the man 
and what he wrote is to understand something of the Dominican vocation. So I'm going to tell you about that in a moment. 1225 to 1274. 1225 to 1274. He lived only a few years longer than I've already been alive. It's kind of a scary thought. From a noble Italian family, at the age of five, he became an oblate at the Benedictine Abbey, the famous Benedictine Abbey of Monte Cassino. He stayed there for four years, but then he left. He went to study at the University of Naples and was there from 1239 to 1244. So basically for his upper teen age, he was studying the liberal arts. And there, I'm going to come back, circle back around and tell you a bit about this University of Naples because there's a very important historical aspect. And when we're going through this historical things, I'm going to ask you, bear with me. It's an, it's an amazing story, and it's a story of God's providence. How in God's providence was this teacher that clearly he intended to stand out from all other teachers? What are the historical conditions that brought him about? It's rather remarkable. He is at the University of Naples where he's studying the liberal arts and the natural, what's called the natural philosophy of Aristotle. As you'll see shortly, this is actually very new at the time. The natural philosophy of Aristotle and the metaphysics of Aristotle had been lost to Western civilization for many centuries. So it has just been reintroduced. Interestingly, the University of Naples was one of the first universities at this point that was teaching the thought of Aristotle that would become so foundational in St. Thomas's philosophy and worldview. And here he is as a 15 to a 19-year-old being exposed to the thought of Aristotle for the first time, many in Europe being exposed of the intellectuals being exposed to Aristotle in any deeper way at this point for the first time. We will come back to that. In 1244, he becomes a Dominican. It's important to recognize that Dominicans themselves had only been founded in 1215. So they are an extremely new, as it were, untested order. And Quick word on that, his family that was a noble family did not, perhaps you're familiar with this, so say it in a word, I'm not going to tell you the whole story, there's some fascinating stories associated with it. His family did not want him to become a Dominican because it was not prestigious. At this point, to be an abbot of, a, of the Benedictines would have been very prestigious. The Dominicans, not prestigious at all. St. Thomas was at the, Dominican, at the Benedictines. He loved the Benedictines. He always maintained a great love for, for St. Benedict, spoke very highly of the Benedictine tradition, was not called to be a Benedictine, and, and is, plays an important part in the growth and formation of the Dominican order. He studied in Paris from 1245 to 1248 with the great St. Albert the Great and then for several more years in Cologne. We're going to come back to that also. St. Albert was one of the first great intellectuals in Europe to really get to know the mind of Aristotle and was able to pass that on to this greatest student of his, St. Thomas Aquinas. One great biographer of St. Thomas says the following. St. Thomas had no sooner heard Master Albert expound every science with such wondrous depth of wisdom, then he rejoiced exceedingly at having so quickly found that which he had come to seek, one who offered him so unsparingly the fulfillment of his heart's desire. Thomas now began to be more than ever silent, more than ever assiduous in study and devout in prayer. 
It's a very beautiful relationship that he had with St. Albert. We don't have many things that are in particular that we know about it other than it was a profound master-to-disciple relationship, one wherein, very beautifully, as a testimony to the master, the disciple did exceed his master in a glorious way. But that's very much owed to St. Albert, called the Great. 1252, he goes to the great University of Paris, premier university in in Europe, but at this point still rather new. He is teaching there as a bachelor from 1252 to 1256. He becomes a master in 1256. There's a little bit of back and forth between teaching in Italy for a few years, and he comes back to Paris, and he goes back to Italy, and then he dies in Italy in 1274. He's proclaimed a doctor of the church by Pope Pius V in 1567. A couple things about the Dominican vocation. The Dominican order is born of a rather tumultuous situation, and I'd like to share this with you briefly, uh, but it's worth our understanding. In the 12th and 13th centuries, something very interesting was happening in Europe. There was a great ferment going on, and part of that great ferment was that there was a movement to go back to something in the apostolic tradition that had not so much been brought out in the Christian life. In many ways, the Christian life is about following the apostles. The apostles are the first disciples of our Lord. As Christians, then, we seek to follow the apostles as they are examples to us in living like our Lord. The great monastic tradition was very much a living of the apostolic life to the full. You can say this is what the religious life was about. And the great monastic tradition, Benedictines being a premier example of that, are about living the apostolic life. But here's an interesting truth. There was an aspect of the apostolic life that had not so much been done. And that was what we'll call itinerant preaching. Itinerant is from the Latin word iter, which means a journey. Itinerant means going out and journeying around. The apostles, the disciples of our Lord, had been sent forth to go around preaching by foot. Go wherever, preaching the word. That had not so much been brought out in the Christian tradition. It's not that it necessarily had been rejected, but it hadn't particularly been brought out. For instance, the monastic tradition, there's a great emphasis on stability. We are in a community. We live the contemplative life together. It's like the cynical where the apostles were. We come together to live the fullness of the Christian life as the apostles did with our Lord. You might say then the monastic tradition is particularly based upon living like the apostles did in the cynical. But now in the 13th century, part of the interesting situation is a number of people are starting to go around doing itinerant preaching. Some of them actually were heretics. And this was a problem. And so itinerant preaching itself started to get a little bit of a bad name, and it was very, very controversial. Who are these people? What are they doing? Why are they not in a monastery? Why are they going around, leaving behind our great tradition of the monastic life, going around preaching? To come to the point here, the Dominican vocation is a unique one. It was rather new 
in the history of the church. And by the way, the Franciscans are this also. But the basic, beautiful hybrid that comes about, the great genius of the Dominican tradition, of the Dominican vocation, and the Franciscan vocation, was to graft itinerant preaching onto a kind of monastic life, something that people thought could not be done. That was to be their essence. And and it's a very, shall we say, delicate operation. But St. Dominic, the one inspired by the Holy Spirit to do this, his emphasis was on we must live in community, we must have a strong monastic aspect of having a contemplative life, a strong liturgical life together in a community, the way that the monastic tradition always had. But we'll have to modify it as necessary so as to make possible that we will go forth and be itinerant preachers and also mendicants. You've perhaps heard the word mendicant. Mendicant means literally, beggars. And what that meant was they were going to make their living. This is poverty in the full sense. They were going to only have that which they were able to beg. Now note, poverty has always been an important part of the monastic tradition. But that was individual poverty in the community of the monastery would still own things. And that would allow for the stability of the monastic community, that together they owned something, though individuals did not own anything. So that's how the vow of poverty would be done in the monastic tradition. But now there's going to be a new approach here that was, that was somewhat radical and new, that this is going to be a mendicant poverty. We are going to live together in a, in a kind of monastic way and have a certain stability, but we are going to be itinerant and mendicant preachers so that we are going to be consistently going out to wherever the Word of God needs to be preached and be so poor that we will only make our living, support ourselves by begging, and we will only get what we have through begging. The volumes have been written on the incredible controversy that this raised and, and people insisting this can not be done. This is why would we need to do this? The monastic tradition is fine as it is. I just, I'm, I'm pretty much going to leave it at that, but I just I wanted to, to give you some sense of, again, the son of a nobleman going into this new order. That at this point, it's even controversial as to whether God would really want us to do such a thing. Does this really fit in with the mission of the church at all? That you would go and live in mendicant poverty. How are you going to have any stability as a community if you don't own anything together? I mean, it, it, it is, again, very radical. And, the, and you could say many negative things about it. You're going to go join those beggars, basically. St. Thomas Aquinas had the insight following St. Dominic that there is something absolutely essential in God's great providence for the church that is coming out right here. A couple of the quick things about the Dominican Order, just so you can understand, again, the man. The specific end of the Dominican Order is the salvation of souls through preaching. Through preaching. If you've ever seen their OP, Order 
of preachers. So Dominicans, their other name, is the order of preachers. One way it might be put is the church needs specialists in the different areas. One, of course, central aspect of the church's mission is preaching. And so the Holy Pontiff saw, you know, proving what St. Dominic did, these are going to be the experts in preaching. There will be many other preachers in the church, but this is going to be a community whose entire life is fundamentally going to be ordered around preaching. In the fundamental means that the order uses to attain its ends, I will just list the four. The one that's most interest to us is the fourth one. The first three it has in common with basically other religious communities. The evangelical councils of poverty, chastity, and obedience. Any religious community is going to have those three. Two, what's called the regular life with monastic observances. So this includes fasts. This includes silence. Solemn chanting of the divine office. You might think, how can itinerant preachers do do solemn chanting of the divine office. They are going to have that key aspect of the liturgy. And then finally, the assiduous, and those are the words that are used from the start for the Dominican community, the assiduous study of sacred truth. That is the particularly unique aspect of the Dominican order. That study is emphasized that in order to be prepared to be preachers, we must be men of the word. We must especially have devoted all of our energies to studying sacred theology, scripture, and any other sciences that are necessary. And so Dominicans tend also to go into even profane sciences that are necessary in the service of theology. I'd like to just wrap up, close this section by saying to you, I like to capture overall Dominican spirituality in terms of the word, in terms of the word, and three aspects in relation to the word. Receive the word, communicate the word, live the word. Receive it, communicate it, live it. And this, ladies and gentlemen, I think is the key to understanding the man, St. Thomas Aquinas. Let's turn now to look at generally what is going on now in the historical situation. The bottom line here is at this time, there is a great ferment going on intellectually in Europe. And why is that the case? It is fundamentally, fundamentally because of a reintroduction of the thought of Aristotle. And the, and the bottom line here, ladies and gentlemen, is this, that the major works of Aristotle had been lost centuries before, and ironically, Muslims are the ones who found it. They found the lost works of Aristotle, and they are the ones who started to study Aristotle. So right at this time now, an interesting part of this, of this ferment is that there is an emperor at this time named Frederick II, very powerful, extremely influential emperor, and he was fascinated with all things Eastern. And so he was constantly looking to the learning of the Arabs, their medicine, 
their philosophy. And he was very much encouraging, let's bring that over and let's bring that into our institutions. So Islam at this point, there's a fascinating um, intercourse between Islam and Christianity at this point. Islam at this point is in North Africa. It's in Asia Minor. It's very significantly in parts of Spain. So at this point, there is much interaction, and so this teaching is now coming across. What we need to look at here is, why is that so problematic? Right now, what you're probably thinking to yourself is, well, isn't this just going to be great? Aristotle is going to be reintroduced, is going to come in, and, and, and we're all going to live happily ever after. Well, this actually was an extremely dangerous time for the church, and I'd like to try to make clear why. What is arriving at this point is central works of Aristotle that we had not seen before, but particularly because we had not seen before, they hadn't been able to be in any way integrated with a Christian worldview. And there are key aspects, ladies and gentlemen, of Aristotle's worldview that are simply contrary to the faith. Yes, this is the thinker, Aristotle, that St. Thomas is going to call. His nickname for Aristotle is the philosopher. Just the philosopher. St. Thomas has the highest of respect for Aristotle. But nonetheless, we need to understand. Aristotle, of course, is a pagan of the 4th century B.C. Some of the things that he holds are absolutely contrary to the faith. Let me name a couple of them. He held that what's called the eternality of the world. The world had always, had always existed. It was not created in time. It had, in fact, no beginning in time. And in fact, in Aristotle, there's also no sense of creation. Aristotle holds that there's a God who caused all things, but he did not create ex nihilo. And so there had always been the world, and it was not created ex nihilo. Central to the Christian worldview is that God, at a particular point, began time. Creation in time is central to the Christian worldview. So here we have people looking at this thought coming over from Aristotle and saying, this man teaches things that are directly contrary to the faith. Another problem here is this. What is arriving is not pure Aristotelianism. An important historical detail I need to introduce you to a man, and that man's name is Averroes. A-V-E-R-R-O-E-S. Averroes lived in the 12th century, the prior century. He had been the greatest of the Arab philosophers. His nickname, that St. Thomas uses for him, is the commentator. Why does he call him the commentator? Because he wrote so many commentaries on Aristotle. So at this point in time, he is the great authority on Aristotle. You want to know what Aristotle holds? You go to Averroes, the great Arab commentator, because he has read all of the works of Aristotle. He will be able to tell you what Aristotle held. The problem is Aristotle, pardon me, Averroes, uh, it, it, it can be a little bit confusing, so I'm going to try to keep it as simple as possible. Yes, he is a Muslim, but at the same time, he holds a primacy of philosophy such that he holds there is no need for divine revelation. He is so impressed with the philosophy of Aristotle that Averroes holds that the philosophy of Aristotle is all that you need, and that gives you the whole account of the world. So Averroes is very anti 
ultimately, the need for divine revelation. There's a couple other teachings of Averroes that are deeply problematic. At this point, I'm just going to mention his understanding of the human person. He does not hold that there is individual immortality. Averroes does not hold or holds that there is not individual immortality. So, here's the situation. Christian thinkers are looking at this Averroes, and they're saying, this Averroes is the man who best understands Aristotle. And now he's saying these things that are profoundly problematic. In fact, Aristotle himself does not say that there is not individual immortality, but Averroes does. But to the Christian West, we get there are, yes, some actual problems in Aristotle that are contrary to the faith. Add to that now Averroes' own interpretations of Aristotle, and you have an explosive mixture. So now, moving right along, what happens? In general, the authorities in the church, this is an absolutely fascinating time. I cannot imagine what it had been like to be there at the time. The authorities of the church see this is a big problem. As the authorities of the church are saying, we've got to keep Aristotle out. We have got to keep Aristotle out. The great tradition of theologians at this point is the great Augustinian tradition. St. Augustine has been the master of medieval theologians for centuries. Your major theologians in the Augustinian tradition look at this new Aristotelianism, and they say, this is from the devil. This is a very big problem. We have got to keep it out. And so, in God's great providence, the church authorities actually tried to suppress the teaching of Aristotle in the universities. And I know this is, this is gonna, you're going to find this utterly strange. One of the universities that wouldn't not teach it was the University of Naples, where St. Thomas Aquinas was. So he was actually studying something that wasn't really supposed to be being studied. Now, I don't want you to be scandalized by this, and I'm not suggesting that we don't follow church authority on what's supposed to be studied. But it, I'm, I'm, well, I'm telling you the story as it is. <laughs> Can't make it up. So, in any case, here we have St. Thomas is studying Aristotle, and he's studying Aristotle with the best of them. And then you have the main... Christian theologians who at this point are saying we've got to reject Aristotle and, and the thing is it became particularly dangerous where some church intellectuals actually started to even go in the direction of saying you know this whole kind of philosophy thing is just too dangerous and there started to be a strong anti-intellectual movement that, that this, this whole studying of philosophy is going to undermine things. And so you had this very strange mix. There were then some Christians, just to top it out, there's some Christians who are Averroists, meaning they follow Averroes. These Christians follow Averroes in the reading of Aristotle. And so you have this crazy situation where they end up saying, all right, we're still going to be faithful to the church, so what we'll say is this. 
philosophy is over here, and philosophy comes to its own conclusions using unaided reason. And then over here is what the church teaches, and we believe that by faith. But you've got faith over here, and you've got reason over here, and they don't necessarily agree with one another. And, and we'll just leave well enough alone. Because it's pretty clear that the greater Verwees and Aristotle over here are telling you this, and the church is telling us this, and they don't seem to go together. So there's starting to be what was actually called the two-truth theory. You can have faith over here and reason over here. Ladies and gentlemen, this is dramatic. Because I want to tell you particularly why. The Christian faith, at the end of the day is highly, highly intellectual. In, 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 in this sense, it is a religion, it is the faith of the truth, of the true account of everything that is. I present for your consideration, it is central to the identity of Christianity to have the truth about the whole. I won't necessarily say to have the whole truth about the whole. In other words, to be able to expound the whole truth about the whole. But it is central to Christianity that has the truth about the whole. Our Lord said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And the truth will set you free. I present for your consideration that this was a crisis. This is not my own thesis. This is what my great teachers have pointed out. This was a crisis that you could say is greater than the type of crises you hear about. Well, you know, the Muslims at this point might overrun, you know, win a particular battle. It's a very different situation if the self-understanding of the church, as it were, is undermined to the point where we're not able to give a coherent view of the whole. I like to picture in my own mind at this point that the great Saint Albert, the great Saint Albert, the great, at this point, turned to his great student, St. Thomas Aquinas, and said, Thomas, you and I know how much truth is in this Aristotle. Someone has got to show everybody that Aristotle is not contrary to the faith. Because if someone doesn't show that Aristotle, whom you and I know, Thomas, is fundamentally right about many things, if someone doesn't show that this is not contrary to our faith, dot, dot, dot. He, he doesn't even have to fill in the blank. And I just picture the young, the young St. Thomas just saying, well, Master, we, we can do this. Aristotle's not contrary to the faith. In the fundamental points that he makes, that is our faith. 
because it's the truth. And if it's the truth, it's ours. And ladies and gentlemen, historically, St. Thomas Aquinas, functionally, individually, formed by those around him, but he is the man who showed the world that Aristotelianism and the Catholic faith are eminently compatible. No one else had done that. It's not clear that anyone else really could have done it. And he did it. And that's one of the most exciting things. In God's great providence, that's just the way the things ended up panning out. Let's take a peek here at now some things that will more specifically prepare you for reading this, the, the, the Summa. By the way, that will prepare you for reading the Summa because, get ready, after quoting Scripture, he doesn't quote anyone else more than he quotes Aristotle, which could, can, can seem outright strange to you. He is convinced fundamentally when he is quoting Aristotle he is quoting the man that in God's providence had been the best, not the only, but the best instantiation of what unaided human reason can achieve. Again, why he's calling him the philosopher. So in St. Thomas Aquinas' mind, Aristotle, the student of the great Plato, was an essential gift of God to mankind in developing our ability to understand the world and ourselves and ultimately to be a bulwark of the faith. There were three main duties, ladies and gentlemen, of a master in theology at the University of Paris. And I want to talk to you about one of them. The three were legere, disputare, and predicare. To read, to dispute, and to preach. And I want to talk very briefly about disputare, disputation, because understanding this, you will be prepared for the very strange structure of the Summa. If you've looked at the Summa before, you know what I'm talking about. It is, in writing, a presentation of the method that was called disputation, the great masterpiece of scholasticism. And so I just want to very quickly give you a sketch of that, and then we'll move towards wrapping up, and I'll, and I'll take your questions. Disputare. It's an active pedagogy. It was the fruit of centuries of examination of the best way, I present for your consideration, to pursue truth as a community. In any case, this was their conviction. This method called disputation was the fruit of centuries of relentless search of a community of intellectuals who were in search of how can we as a community best seek for the truth. For I give you all great intellectuals, all great intellectuals know that the greatest truths are only achieved as a community. St. Thomas Aquinas would be the first to say that. He is a star that stands out on his own. He is absolutely, if you asked him where his thought is from, he would immediately just tell you who his teachers are. He would just point, these men are my teachers. St. Albert the Great, and centuries before St. Augustine, and of course our Lord. 
what happened in disputation. A question is presented. The question that we want to get to the truth of is presented. And at that point, then, objections are raised against it. The first thing that's done, this is the most interesting thing about the method called disputation. Some question is raised. And interestingly, the topic is always raised as a question. We don't already have a conclusion. Whatever we're going to talk about now is always raised by a well-formulated question. What are we going to pursue now? We're going to pursue the answer to this particular question. Then, the person who is guiding this disputation, it was done a couple different ways, it would always have to be someone who's guiding it, normally a master. There would be objections that are raised. Here's the fascinating thing. The first thing that would be presented as regards the answer to this question would be the objections to what the master's own answer will ultimately be. I repeat again, this is very, very important. The first points that would be made would be the strongest possible arguments against what the master thinks the right answer is. You always begin with the objections against your own position. And it was a matter of integrity that you present them the best that you possibly could. Imagine a master like St. Thomas Aquinas who actually was in a position to raise better objections to his own positions than anyone else ever probably was. As a teacher, what he begins with is, here's our questions, and here are my arguments against my own position. And by that time, and some people say this reading the Summa, because you'll find this when you read it, he will ask a question, and you'll see objection one, objection two, objection three. And so I say, beware. <laughs> you come to the end of them, okay, well, here it is. <laughs> I mean, what, I'm convinced, right? They're the objections, of course. Then the main point is made, and then you had to respond in view of the main point that was made to every single one of the objections that were made. These were held publicly, in, where anyone would be allowed to come to them, or they would also be held privately in classrooms. Again, this was the fundamental pedagogy of the schools, that this would be done. And I just want to give you a couple of, of reasons based upon some reflections of the great Joseph Pieper on this as to what the great advantages were of this system. I know this right now might sound a little bit flaky, but that's part of the reason I want to say it to you because it's a very important truth, I think, in reality. There is a necessity of dialogue and discussion in search of the truth. These are the great teachers of our faith, asking the great questions of our faith. And they are saying, if we are going to best, as a community, move towards a proper understanding of the answers of these questions, we must be willing to enter into an honest discussion of these questions. So a kind of essential aspect of discussion. Why is that so important? What can we learn even from that right there? We are invited into something that is a discussion that is bigger than us. As soon as, you're, as, soon as you start to enter into this disputation, as soon as you start to read the Summa, you'll have this sense of, here is a question 
that there already are these inherited answers to. Great men on both sides of the question have been wrestling with this for generations, and I am being invited in to a project that is much bigger than I am. Note how incredibly important that is for our humility. No expectation that you can just step right in here and, oh, of course I've got the answer to this. No, rather, that will actually be surprising if you already have a clear understanding of this. There are the questions that have been being asked for generations that require our going over again and again and again. Note also the beautiful aspects of the humility of being willing to take your opponent seriously. You have to give his argument for him as well as you possibly can, hopefully even better than he would have. Note the humility in how this whole system absolutely makes clear to you this is about the truth. This is not about who holds what. It, it, sure, it could, it could devolve in who's going to win this, but it was set up fundamentally to always be going towards what's the truth of the matter. Here's what this person has said. Here's what this person has said. Here's what this person has said. Now we look honestly at them all. It doesn't matter who said it. What this is about is the truth. I want to just throw out, I, I like to ask myself, do I have the spirit as a teacher and as an intellectual of the disputation? Am I really willing to enter into genuine discussion in pursuit of the truth? Or do I always just assume that I always already have it? And do I really... And this is the biggest point, I think. Do I really listen? Disputation is all about listening. Did you hear how earlier that biographer of St. Thomas said, after he was exposed to this in, in, in St. Albert, he resolved to become all the more silent? Not that he doesn't think he has something to say, but there's this great insight I need to listen first. If I'm going to have anything worthwhile saying, I'm going to have to listen for a very long time to what people wiser than I am have been saying. Final point, and then I'm going to just say something about the structure, and we're, and we're done. We'll just take a moment. Joseph Pieper has the following to say about St. Thomas that I hope will make you kind of excited to see him as a teacher for you and me. The Summa, ladies and gentlemen, was written for beginners. <laughs> it was written for beginners. At some point, I'll, I'll, I'll point out to the, the, the Summa actually, for most of its questions, has about three objections. If you go to what are called his disputed questions, which are not for beginners, get a load of this. He'll ask the question, then he'll raise about 12 objections against his position. Then he'll often have this next section where he does seven more arguments that seem to be for his side, but aren't really. And then he gives his answer, and then he gives his response to all of them. 
it's 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 dramatic, and I'm not. The, the Summa keeps things very simple. He was a master of teaching beginners, and this is why Joseph Pieper says this. I love this. There might be some teachers in the room. A teacher sees the reality just as the beginner can see it, with all the innocence of a first encounter, and yet at the same time with the matured powers of comprehension and penetration that the cultivated mind possesses. And give again, a teacher sees the reality just as the beginner can see it, with all the innocence of a first encounter. And yet at the same time, with the matured powers of comprehension and penetration that the cultivated mind possesses, ladies and gentlemen, from the beginning, St. Thomas Aquinas was a man who looked at reality and was filled with wonder and awe, never lost it, and as a teacher, he would constantly have these young Dominicans coming for formation, and he, would, and he would be right there with them, asking those questions again for the first time ever, and being able to see through their eyes, and therefore lead them to the greater vision. Because it was always about, he first had received the word. He first had listened to the word made it his own, and then he was ready to communicate. And the Summa, ladies and gentlemen, is his masterpiece of laying forth the whole for beginners. That's our background on the Summa. I thank you for your attention. This will be a short question. Could you give us what edition of the Summa you would recommend or what version particularly? Okay, um, sure. Um, Latin. <laughs> In Latin. Oh, the original. Um, but, okay, well then we'll move, to, we'll move to plan B. I'm sorry, I'm just, I shouldn't tease you like that. Um, but honestly, just to everyone else, if you have cited some Latin, I know you're not going to believe me, but, but his Latin actually is, is, is very simple. It's, um, but be that as it may, um, the one that you will most often find is that is said translated by the English by the fathers of the English Dominican province, and it was put out by by Christian classics. Um, I haven't looked recently for, for, I think a lot of people now don't buy the, the several volumes because it's all available online and to get the several volumes of it, you know, traditionally it was like $125 or so, although you might be able to get it for a good deal now used. But, but really, I don't think you'll find actually many uh, different ones available. There's another one that's by the Blackfriars, which is in many, many, many volumes and actually is English and Latin facing pages, which is nice. but most people think that the English translation is not as good. So in general, the translation of the fathers of the English Dominican province, and that was published most recently by Christian Classics, that is the translation that is used, I'm quite sure, in New Advent and other places online. You're welcome. So what was the problem with 17th and 18th century scholasticism that led so many people to give Thomas a bad name? 
Um, I don't have to repeat the question, right? Because uh, everyone gets it. right. Um, I, I, I think it would be a little bit unfair to um, say just 17th and, and, and 18th. Um, there's, I like the work of a Dominican who passed away a few years ago. He taught at the University of Freeburg. His name is Serve Pinkers, P-I-N-C-A-E-R-S. And he... Um, well, his main work is, 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 is eluding, the title of it is eluding me at the moment. He makes the argument that there has been a kind of decay that's been going on in the understanding of St. Thomas that has been an overly legalistic approach to it and was influenced by a philosophy called nominalism that's really been going on for the last 500 years. And so, uh, you know, honestly, you, you ask a very difficult question. It can be discouraging to look at well, there's so many different interpreters of St. Thomas, and they, and they disagree about a number of things. But at the same time, as long as they fundamentally have the spirit of him, I mean, I mean that is the key. Some do, some, some don't. Um, there's no doubt that there, has been a, uh, there have been problems among disciples of St. Thomas. One thing that Vatican II had to do, and maybe that's what's behind your question, Vatican II had to look at a, a kind of renewal where some people thought that they were saying, let's stop doing the St. Thomas Aquinas thing, but more what they were doing is it's become kind of ossified. It's, it, it, it's become uh, too dry and textbooky, and that original spirit that, that animated St. Thomas has been lost. I'm hard-pressed to kind of point to more particularly exactly went wrong. You ask a reasonable question, I'll just say we could talk more about that. And there are some interpreters of St. Thomas that I would recommend more than others. Uh, Doctor, you've uh, mentioned jo Joseph uh, Pieper a few times. Is there a particular book or a couple of books from which you're drawing your ideas about Pieper and Thomas? Um, Yes, uh, th thank you for that question. I, and I just I want to I want to give a broad and sweeping recommendation of of Joseph Pieper. Joseph spelled with an F. He was German. I had the pleasure of meeting him in his extreme old age when I was a doctoral student. I was living in Cologne. He uh, had been a teacher for many years in Munster, um, but. Um, Fortunately, Ignatius Press has had translated and published many works of his. The one that I quoted from is called A Guide to Thomas Aquinas. I might, it might also at some point have been translated under a different name of an introduction to St. Thomas Aquinas. He has a book called The Silence of St. Thomas Aquinas. All, all of these are, are outstanding. I'll throw out a couple of other things. A beautiful synthesis of St. Thomas's moral teachings in his book called The, the Four Cardinal Virtues. He has a book uh, that has been published that is a conglomeration of several books uh, that's called Faith, Hope, and Love. He wrote a book on faith, he wrote a book on hope, he wrote a book on love, and those have all been combined together. Joseph Pieper is an outstanding guide to Thomas Aquinas. He, in general, tends to be readable, um, depending. I mean, sometimes it can be a little bit more difficult. But his introduction or his guide to Thomas Aquinas, and by the way, I'm going to just throw out another uh, great, in that, in that, on that same line, G.K. Chesterton's book, St. Thomas Aquinas, The Dumb Ox, uh, which was a nickname of his. He was a giant man. 
His, he was from a family of soldiers, and he was just a mountain of a man. And so he had the nickname when he was young. Interestingly, because he did not speak very much, he got the nickname the dumb ox, I mean, in the sense of the one who wouldn't speak. Right? Now, the, the, uh, the, the legend is that St. Albert at one point said to the others, you call him the dumb ox, but I tell you, one day he will bellow so loud the whole world will hear. It's okay. In any case, so G.K. Chesterton named his introduction to the thought of Tim, Thomas Aquinas the dumb ox. But thank you. Thank you for that question. Thank you so much, thank Dr. You. Cutterback. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.